1: Hi everyone, it's Ken. Before we start, I want to share some exciting news. We've paired with Midas Touch, so you can now watch these interviews on YouTube. Just search for the Midas Touch YouTube channel or click the link in the show description. Thanks and enjoy the episode.
2: I can laugh at the guys in the tinfoil hats that say we didn't go to the moon. But now that it's corrupting our society and amplified by social media, it's a clear danger to our democracy. And now any kind of conspiracy theorists, you know, I just find it really no longer remotely a laughing matter.
1: I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Garrett Reisman, a former NASA astronaut who's been to space three times. After leaving NASA in 2011, Garrett joined SpaceX, where he served as the director of space operations. He's currently a senior advisor at the company and a professor of astronautical engineering at USC.
2: Garrett, thanks for joining us
1: on Burn the Boats.
2: Uh, Thanks, Ken. Great to be here. You know, I, I never really usually correct people. Even if, but you got my name right. You said you pronounced astronautical engineering right, which I'm really impressed. Most people get those two things wrong. But I've actually only been to space two times.
1: Oh, but how does the three missions work?
2: Yeah, I know that's a neat little trick, huh? I did fly in all three space shuttles that we had. Um, so that was a neat little trick, and 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 I've I've been to space only two times. I have been to Earth. Three times. That is true. Um, <laughs> and the way I did that was I, on my first mission, it was a long duration mission. So I launched on Endeavor and then I came home on Discovery. And then so I got two shuttles, one mission. So only I only launched twice, but I flew in, uh, on all three shuttles. So my third mission was on Atlantis. Awesome.
1: Awesome. Well, I want to get to more of that. I have been really not just looking forward to this interview, but trying to figure it out because I listened to you on, on Joe Rogan and a couple of other shows and you don't Get political, uh, but given my audience, I'm going to figure out how to get you there today. So, uh, are you ready?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. That's that's cool. I'm fine. Actually, if you follow my Twitter feed, I, I do get political on occasion, so it's 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 fine.
1: Good, we'll get it out of you. Um, I want right. to we, we interviewed Charles Bolden, the NASA administrator, a while ago, it was right before Russia invaded Ukraine, and he seemed to have this unshakable faith in the power of cooperation in space to overcome whatever earthly disagreements we may have down here. He was talking, of course, about Russia and the US on the International Space Station. But I feel like the world has changed since then. And I'd love your take on on where you stand on cooperating with a regime like Putin's, even if it's in in space. Uh, I imagine you have worked alongside cosmonauts.
2: Yes, so uh, in fact, during two of the months I was on the International Space Station, it was myself and two Russian cosmonauts. So yeah, I've been there. And the way we handle that is we just are professional when we're doing operational things and focus on the mission and focus on what the day-to-day stuff. And it's kind of like it's kind of like Thanksgiving dinner with your family. You try not to bring up politics or religion or anything that's going to uh, you know mess with your crew camaraderie which as a pilot, you understand how important that is uh, in an operational setting. And there there have always been frictions, especially at the geopolitical level, even back in 2008 when I was up there, uh, nothing nearly as, as extreme as, as what's going on now, though. So you're right. Things now are different. And and I, I have to admit that when I see our astronauts up there and uh, uh, crews departing and arriving and cosmonauts and, and astronauts getting together, giving each other big bear hugs and and slapping high fives and whatnot, it's incongruous. It does not seem right, frankly, with, with what's given the reality of what's happening back here on Earth. I really do hope that one day we can evolve to a point where we have this Star Trek future where everybody, no matter what their nationality or race or gender or religion, we have this big, happy, united humanity going forth in space. And I do believe that space should be an international cooperative place, but at the same time, you can't ignore what's happening on the ground by 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 you know the reality of what's happening so I disagree a little bit with Charlie on this, and I do think that we need to face reality basically
1: well, I think Charlie has probably come around uh, the facts on the ground have i would imagine forced that, but you have talked about kicking Russia off the ISS given their behavior on the ground and and that's not a commentary on the character of the cosmonauts who you worked alongside it's about geopolitical reality
2: right that's correct and and kicking them off is hard uh, and and there's a good reason why it, it, why this cooperation is still going. And that is, uh, the reason is that we have no choice. <laughs> uh, both sides are completely dependent on one another. It's, it's an interdependent system. The, the Russian segment of the space station can't operate without the electrical power supplied by the American segment. The American segment and the rest of uh, the, the, you know, the European segment, the Japanese segment, the, all those segments can't operate without the propulsion capabilities supplied by the Russian segment. So if either side pulls out, it's the end of the ISS. And both the United States and Russia have invested way too much to just walk away from this thing at this point, given that it still has some useful life left. So it's kind of a shotgun wedding. uh, And there's no conscious or uh, what what, did Gwyneth Paltrow put it? like
1: uh, Whatever the amicable divorce in Hollywood is these days. Yeah,
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's no there's no like a, a happy end to this. And so we're stuck, but we have an opportunity. So r- relatively recently, just a few months ago, Russia made yet another pronouncement that they're pulling out. And it's hard to take it seriously because they've said this so many times that they're leaving, they're leaving, and then at the end of the day, they, they don't leave. And I, and I have my suspicions as to why they don't leave, but they don't. And so it, it's very difficult for NASA or anybody to take them seriously because they've, they're saying it again. It's a little bit different this time because it came right after a meeting with Putin himself. So it seems to have the blessing from the dear leader. And then the other thing was it wasn't like we're leaving tomorrow. Uh, it wasn't like a bluster. It wasn't like a, Rogozin, who was a, previously was the head of Roscosmos, he put out this like little music video where we, they abandoned an American astronaut, Mark Vandehey, on the on the space station and said, dos vidanya. Um And, and it, no, that's, that's just bluster. That's, we never take that seriously. But this is a little different because they're not saying we're leaving tomorrow. They said we're leaving in two years. They said, um, you know, 2024. So if, if I were the NASA administrator, you know, I would take them at their word. Why not? They said it. Why, why, why wouldn't we take our partners seriously, right? And I think we have two years to, to put together a crash program to replace that Russian propulsion capability so that we could have, so that the ISS could continue uh, without the Russians' involvement. And then two years from now, if we're ready, just say, okay, you said you're leaving. It's time for you to leave.
1: You said you had your suspicions as to why, in the past, it's been all bluster. Uh, can you share that with us?
2: Yeah, it, it's a simple reason actually: is that without the ISS, without the International Space Station, Russia does not have a space program of any merit whatsoever. And if the if there is one thing that's you know dear and important to Putin, as you well know, it's the at least the perception that he's running a superpower, and superpowers have space programs, human space programs. That's what they do. Now, right now, the ISS is really the only thing that Roscosmos has going for in, in terms of human spaceflight. The United States and other countries are working on new programs. We have a lot on the on, both on the drawing board and about to launch as far as we're going back to the moon with the Artemis program. SpaceX is working on Starship. There's so many things happening right now that we have to look forward to. Russia has none of that. Absolutely nothing. Without the ISS, the only thing they'd be left with for a space program would be launching Soyuz capsules that would do maybe a, a, a few days of orbits and splashing down. They'd be back basically back to like the Gemini days, uh, or in their in their case the the Vashad days. So it would set them way back to a very primitive program. And you might say, well, well couldn't they just fly to the Chinese space station? Well, the, the thing is, they can't because the the orbit that that Chinese space uh, station is in is not reachable uh, with their rockets and their launch sites. They could, you know, go out with their hat in hand and ask the Chinese to take one of their cosmonauts up to their space station, but again, that there would be a very secondary, subservient position for Russia and be hardly befitting a, a superpower. So, really, as far as projecting that soft power or that illusion of strength, the only way for Putin really to do that, to do that, is to maintain their partnership in the ISS.
1: You mentioned the Artemis. Mission and the struggle to get back to the moon—that's a a stepping stone to Mars, right?
2: Yes. So, so uh, I, I certainly view it that way, and I know NASA uh, wants to view it that way. There's this debate that's raged uh, for decades now. Like, should we go after the ISS? Should we go back to the moon? Should we or just go for Mars? And there's been a lot of good reasons put forth on both sides of that debate. It's one of the few times today you'll hear me say that it's okay to say both sides. <laughs> Uh, you know, it should be considered uh, equally because it, it, it is it is a, it is something that could go either way. And and um, and, and there are good reasons to do both. Uh, you know, if you, if you look at uh, I've talked to Elon Musk about this and, and he's, uh, you know, at least initially was all about going to Mars because he believes we have this window where we have the technical capability right now to send some to send humans to Mars. And you don't know how long that window is going to stay open. Right. We've had plenty of examples in human history where technology didn't develop in a a purely monotonic fashion. In other words, it wasn't all up, 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 up. There are setbacks. You know, we had dark ages where certain technologies were lost for periods of time until we got them back. So it is quite possible that, you know, just because we have the capability right now doesn't mean that 20, 30, 100 years from now, we'll still have the capability. So in his mind, he wants to get on with it. And I get that. And on the other hand, uh, there's good reasons to go back to the moon first, because there's still a lot we don't know that would be nice to know before we send humans to Mars. And the biggest thing probably has to do with radiation. So there's a lot of, of nasty radiation uh, once you go out uh, back to the moon or onto Mars. So I was, when I was on the space shuttle and on the space station, we're above the atmosphere, but we're still pretty close to earth. You know, we're only about uh, 300 kilometers up or just a little bit over 200 miles. And that's not far, right? 200 miles, that's, that's pretty darn close. The moon is a quarter of a million miles away, right? So we're above all the atmosphere when we're on the space station. But we're still, the, the key is, we're still well below the Earth's magnetic field. And that magnetic field, of the Earth, is what protects all of us, not only while we're on the space station, but all of us down here on Earth from those harmful radiation uh the, the harmful radiation that's out there outside the earth's magnetic field it's like a shield like a force field if you will so if we go back to the moon you, we have to deal with that and the way we dealt with it during apollo is we just didn't stay very long you know those missions were like a week or two so if we want to go to mars there's no option to go to mars for a week right if you're going you're going for a couple of years and so what you if you just just go for it, then you're committing to put people in that radiation environment for that long. Now we know exactly what kind of radiation is out there. We've had very sensitive instruments that have gone on all of our Mars probes and our rovers and other spacecraft we sent out beyond the Earth's magnetic field. So we know precisely what ions are out there and how much energy they have and what the flux is. We've measured all that. What we don't know is what does all that stuff do to the human body, okay? Because there's no direct comparison. That we have the closest thing we have as far as data goes is from accidents and radiation with the radiation workers or from survivors of nuclear uh the nuclear bombs in world war ii which is uh, which again is not really it's not really apples to apples either because then we're talking about very high doses over short periods of time as opposed to lower doses over long periods of time so the bottom line is we don't really know what's going to happen to people and so one way we can learn kind of safely is we can go to the moon and put people into that environment, and stay for a couple of weeks. Then we can stay for a couple of months. Then we can stay for a year, and we could do this in a kind of a building block fashion. And then we'll know uh, we'll have data, and then we can go to Mars and we can know what kind of risk we're really taking. So that's in my in my view that's the most useful thing about going to the moon first. But you know maybe we just go for it. I don't know.
1: <laughs> Are there any astronauts who? don't think that going to Mars is a good idea, not for the technical reasons, not for the scientific challenge it poses, but because they're looking at what's going on down here and and thinking, you know what, uh, we got to get our shit together first.
2: Well, yeah, so I don't think you can find any astronauts that say that they don't think it's a good idea one day for us to go to Mars. I think... Uh None of my buddies would say that, (laughs) so I I don't know. Maybe there's somebody out there that's uh, that's, uh, that would say that. But the argument that uh, you know, why are we? This was the argument that was made during Apollo. Why are we spending all this money on on flying to the moon when we have all these problems to deal with on Earth? And I think that argument has merit. Uh, And I think if we were spending a good percentage of our federal budget or our GDP on human space exploration, that would be a mistake because that would compromise our efforts to address uh, climate change and address, you know, the war in Ukraine or address energy prices or address, you know, all, all the myriad uh, homelessness, all the myriad of, of, of problems that we have down here on Earth. But we're not. We're not spending like 50 percent of our GDP or even 25 percent of our federal budget. Do you, you know how much how much uh, if you take NASA's budget, and you divide by the total federal budget. Do you know what percent it is? I don't. It's half of 1%. So for every tax dollar that, that a taxpayer pays, one half of one penny goes to NASA. And that's not just for, like, the Artemis program for the moon or the, or the human spaceflight. That's for the James Webb Space Telescope. That's for the helicopter on Mars, the Perseverance rover, all the things that NASA does. They do it on one half of 1% of the U.S. Of, of the US tax dollar. So, at that rate of expenditure, if if we shut down NASA entirely and stopped exploring space, would it move the needle at all on on uh, if we just you know if we just had one half of one percent more budget to spend? No, It's not going to make any measurable difference. so I, I don't I think that that rate of expenditure is appropriate, given the return on that investment and the fact that it's an investment in our future that will pay dividends down the road, I think is a smart play. I'm not I'm not advocating ramping. I would advocate ramping it up to one percent, but I'm not going to advocate ramping it up to 10 or 20 because I do think we have other other things we have to do.
1: And the ultimate argument isn't that, you know, we need a backup planet. It's that we're a species that has that desire to explore in our DNA. And this is the public expression of that. Is that a fair uh, is that a a fair summary of, of
2: your philosophy on it? I would say it's both. I mean, yes, it's human nature to explore, and 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 that's what we do. You could, and there are people out there um, who, including a, a past president of the Planetary Society, who believes that uh, we could just do it all with VR. You know, we could send these machines out there. We put on those goggles and pretend you're walking around on Mars. There might be something to say for that. I, I mean, it is kind of fun to go on Google Earth, right, and go, like, walk around the streets of Paris or something and look around. That's kind of cool. But it's not as cool as going to Paris. So I don't think that ever will truly be satisfying from that perspective. But I do think that there is something to to this idea of survival of the species. And that is, I think, ultimately, maybe the strongest motivation to actually go and have a... And that is what's driving Elon, I can tell you that. The idea is that uh, we have essentially all of our eggs in this one basket here on Earth. And let me make something very clear. And uh, Elon or, or Jeff Bezos or any of these guys that are proponents of, of sending large numbers of people out into the solar system and getting off of Earth, none of them are saying that Earth is a disposable planet. All right, we're not saying that, well, you know, we've kind of wrecked this place with climate change. Let's just get out of here and, and move on to the next one. That is not what they're saying. In fact, Elon, his plan A was to deal with climate change by electrifying all of our personal transportation, which is why he created Tesla, right? So, Plan A is definitely preserve this place. And I could tell you, there is no place as well-suited for human habitation and life than Earth. I mean, we evolved on this planet. Our organism is particularly well-suited for 14.7 PSI atmospheric pressure 80% 80% nitrogen, 20% oxygen uh, and one G. Uh, our bodies are built for that. Our skeletons are built for that. Everything about it, any place we go is not gonna treat us nearly as well as this place. Not to mention the fact this is the only planet in the known universe where there's pizza, all right? Which is not not trivial. Having lived up there for three months without pizza, I could tell you that. So for all those reasons, nobody's saying that that we wanna get rid of earth and move on. But we have to be somewhat realistic. There have been multiple, I think, seven extinction events, including the most famous one, the one that took out the dinosaurs when we got hit by an asteroid. But that was not the only extinction event over the course of Earth's history. If you go back billions of years, we had, uh, you know, periods of time where there was so much volcanic activity that there was really no animal life on the planet. And nearly, all, all life was nearly extinguished. So Earth has gone through all these different cataclysmic events, and there's going to be another one. It could be... An asteroid, another asteroid, it could be, you know, a super volcano like like Yellowstone going berserk. There's a lot, or, or and, and most likely we could do it ourselves with climate change or nuclear war. So we, it's perfectly perfectly within our capability to create our own extinction event. So for all those reasons, it'd be great if we did have uh, another option, if we had a, a self-sustaining colony somewhere else in the solar system, where if the earth does have another extinction event, human life will still go on. I think that is a valuable insurance policy and one worth pursuing.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of
2: one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for
1: so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily. You worked at SpaceX. Do you have any reservations at all about billionaires like Elon like Jeff Bezos leading the charge and in in not an insignificant way basically making policy for the
2: the human race yeah so that's a that's a thorny that's a difficult question I think first of all I'm I'm actually grateful to Elon and to Jeff and to Richard because- Richard Branson, the third one, right? Richard Branson, yes. Is, is another billionaire that's, that's devoting a lot of his resources to human spaceflight. So, so those three individuals have, they've all ponied up the cash and, and put their own efforts in, into this with, with great vigor and have really revitalized this whole industry and, and really disrupted the industry. There's been tremendous advantages, and, and NASA has been a beneficiary of, of a lot of it. In, in, in a certain sense, I admire what they've done, and, and I appreciate what they've done. And, you know, I, I, I do think, though, that there is a risk. One, one thing that, that we have to be very clear about is that so far, anyway, in, in, the, in the area of orbital human spaceflight, it's not just been a, a SpaceX or a company, uh, any individual company or any individual billionaire that's really set the policy. It's been a partnership with NASA. So the, the this, this SpaceX Crew Dragon, the Falcon 9 rocket, the Boeing Starliner, those were all developed in partnership with NASA in a public-private partnership where the, the design and the certification of the vehicle was, was done uh, together with the government. And in a lot of ways, is, is no different from the way NASA has always done this. You know, NASA has always had a, a private company build their vehicles. There was not like a, a factory with civil servants in it that built the Saturn V rocket. I mean, part of a variant of the Saturn V was built by the Chrysler Corporation, okay? So there's always been private companies involved. Uh, it's just that what's happening now is a different relationship and kind of giving the private company more freedom to, to innovate and to do things their own way. And that's had benefits for both sides. It's also a difference in, in IP ownership. So uh, intellectual property, the companies, SpaceX owns and operates those rockets and those spacecraft. And then they could turn around and use those rockets and spacecraft for private missions, where Rockwell, that built the space shuttle, could never do that. That was not part of the contract. They couldn't build another spaceship or even use the existing uh, shuttle and sell tickets. That that was against the law. But it's different now. So there are some key differences, but in, in a lot of ways, it's the way it's always been. And NASA still, and I hope that that continues. Now, will that continue or will SpaceX go to Mars without NASA without the partnership and just do it themselves it's possible and then you do have to ask yourself questions about well what's the what will be the the governance structure once we get to Mars i mean who's in charge over there what's the law is it maritime law what what's the what, what what's the legal arrangement if there's a crime committed on Mars you know is it fall under you know US legal authority or so anyway there's a lot of questions that that, that I, I do think will will be a lot more difficult if it's no longer a partnership.
1: I vote for maritime law because, you know, then we can have pirates, right? Um, (laughs) Al Al Gore.
2: Life is always better with pirates. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Al Gore famously argued that if we could all just see the Earth from space, we'd get along a little better. I'm wondering if your time in space... Uh, Seeing the Earth as a a barely insulated ball of of dirt and water changed your perspective once you got back home. Did it change how you think about politics or, you know, being a parent? How did it affect you?
2: Wow. Yeah. So a lot of astronauts talk about this overview effect where you see the Earth from space and realize that all of a sudden that we're all in this together and have the sense of unity as a human species, which is a wonderful sentiment. And I don't mean to disparage it in any way. But I'm a bit of an outlier because I didn't get this kind of sudden epiphany, like a lot of these guys talk about. I looked out the window, and you know, it was nice. (laughs) It was pretty, you know. It was uh, uh, the oceans were really blue, and and uh, you know, looking at like the aurora, that was that was spectacularly beautiful. Things like that, and watching the orbital, watching the sun come up over the horizon was was breathtaking. Especially once when I did it when I was uh, out in a spacewalk that. Was an incredible. I still have that image. I can see it right now. So yes, that was all beautiful, but it didn't lead to this kind of transformative moment or this overview effect. That like to say. and I think it's because I knew this before I left. That fundamentally, what makes us all human beings and and the things that unite us are so much more powerful and important than all the tribal things that that divide us. So whether that be religion, nationality race, politics, gender, all those things that divide us are trivial compared to the fact that we're all fundamentally human beings, created equal, living in the same home, breathing the same air. You shouldn't, in my opinion, have to strap yourself into a rocket and blast off into space and look back at the earth to realize that one fundamental self-evident truth that we're all human beings. And so, yeah, it's great that they talk about it that way, but we should all understand that intrinsically
1: that way of thinking suggests that if we faced a common threat as a species those commonalities would would supersede and override our our petty differences and we'd band together i mean you know the example sometimes given is if uh, aliens invaded you know we'd figure out that yeah we got to work together so I, i'm i'm sympathetic to your perspective but then i think about a common threat like climate change and our total inability to rise above our petty differences. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm stuck on which side I'm going to fall on.
2: Yeah, I know. So boy, there's a lot of, a lot of things we could talk about there. So yeah, I know. Like, like, like it would be like independence day, right. If we were invaded, we'd be like, this is now everyone, July 4th is now everyone's independence day, you know, whatever Bill Pullman said. So yeah, it would be great. But that is a clear and and present danger uh, where there's no, the, the problem we have with climate change is kind of the old prisoner's dilemma, right? Where uh, you could do your country can do great things and 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 do lots of uh, you know reduce energy consumption and sacrifice and 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 reduce their carbon footprint, but if the other countries don't follow suit, it's it's all for nothing, right? So it's this classic game theory problem of of, of the prisoner's dilemma. So that's why I think it's it's proven to be so intractable. Because, you know, it, it, it's, why, should I, why, why should I turn down uh, or turn up my thermostat if, if those guys aren't doing it, right? That is a, a problem. And, and we have to overcome that because I think it's becoming more and more clear that, yes, it's affecting all of us and that nobody's going to be immune from this problem. But it's difficult. I, I think the key, and one of the things I learned from working with Elon watching what he did with, with Tesla, uh, is the key is not to, uh, to, uh, to address this all with sticks, and I was just over in Armenia, by the way, and I was hanging out with some climate change scientists and talking about how they realize that they have to understand better how to deal with public policy and public perception because they failed miserably. Because if they just keep saying the sky is falling, well, not the sky is falling, it's not Chicken Little, it's the sky is actually falling. But if they just keep browbeating everybody, it's not effective. It just, it it, it, it turns people off and it it drives them to inaction, you know, it makes them makes them passive. And one of the things I, I I learned from, again, from watching Elon with Tesla, which is that you can't just, you have to, there has to be a carrot too. So the way I, I look at this, and so the, the Tesla example is, he realized that as long as people were only buying electric cars because they cared about the environment and they were willing to put up with deficiencies, you know, not being able to go as far, not being able to go as fast, uh, being, not being as safe by driving these little tiny, basically golf carts, Right that it was never gonna catch on and, and it was never gonna have mass appeal. So what he said was that we have to do both. We have to make a car that, that uh, addresses climate change and an electric vehicle, but make a car also that is better than the alternatives at the same time and make a car that goes faster, that is sexier, you know, that has better performance, better features. Uh, so the people will buy the car because it's a better car. And I think we need to do the same thing with climate change. I think we really need to invest heavily in energy production in a sustainable way. So I want my children and I want the children in in countries that are developing in the future to use more energy per capita than I do. I want them to crank those air conditioning units up. I want them to, you know, uh, have a bigger house, you know, uh, whatever, uh, uh, you know, use all that energy, travel around the world in airplanes, do all that. But let's find a way that we can do all that. And at the same time, not produce greenhouse gas emissions. And I think there is a technical solution if we try hard enough and we can do both. And I think that's how we fix this problem and make everybody's life better. That's saying we're going to address climate change and your life's going to have to get worse in the process. We're going to address climate change and your life's going to get better. And I think the policymakers are starting to come around to that.
1: Yeah, I, I have always assumed that people in your line of work have just a reflexively optimistic, outlook when it comes to to technology so it, it really surprised me to hear you talk about Elon Musk's technological pessimism and this idea that the that the window might close i, I mean in our politics we have this same Tension, those who believe that the wheel always turns forward if we keep pushing it and those who believe that, you know, we could slide back very quickly, very dramatically without even realizing it. Where do you fall in terms of not just technological optimism, but this idea that the wheel of progress inexorably turns forward?
2: Yeah. So like there was a Martin Luther King quote about the, the arc of justice bending. Yeah, I don't know. I certainly, prior to Donald Trump's election, I thought that that arc was bending the right way. And I thought we were on this uh, inexorable march towards a better future where we're going to be more tolerant and we're going to get along better and be more sympathetic to each other as, as a human species. Um, and then I think anybody that's, you know, that's seen what's happened in this country over, you know, the past 10 years now, I guess, over the past decade, Realizes that no, the progress is much more tenuous and much more fragile, and we could totally backslide and and regress. And I, I think, and so we just live through that right here. But it's that's nothing new. There's plenty of historical examples. Uh, look at Germany after World War II, as far as a country that regressed, and uh, you know. And so, so as far as social progress, our technology keeps getting better for the most part. Uh, you know, at least in the recent century, it's it's been getting better all the time. But our social progress uh, has its ups and downs. And so, you know, in a way, if you're a, a screenwriter in Hollywood, it's, it's what you want, right? I mean, the, the thing that makes human existence, if you could detach yourself and be objective and, and view it from, a, from like the moon looking back at Earth as, uh, as an alien species just observing the Earth, the thing that makes human life so fascinating is the fact that we have just the right balance of good and evil in our nature to make the outcome completely uncertain. <laughs> right. So we we could end up and I, I hope and I, I am optimistic that we end up in that Star Trek future where we all get along and we're out there. And, and if we do, we're going to be spreading out through the solar system. We're going to go beyond that. Uh, it's inevitable. And if we can find a way to get along and solve our problems to, working together. right? But you could just as easily, I hate to say it, but just as easy could end up in the dystopian future where we're uh we're either we're fighting our own machines like the terminator or or we're the few survivors of a nuclear war there's a lot of very bleak possible outcomes too and i don't know i don't know i, I but, but as far as what world do i want for my children i think that's obvious and i i would hope that we would all want that so there's got to be some way of of getting back on track
1: are you a particular kind of sci-fi nerd you've you've mentioned star trek twice now is that the vein you you would put yourself in or are you more of a star wars guy i've heard you like kubrick as well which is its own very very narrow niche uh where do you where do you fit
2: so yeah no i'm i'll play both sides on this one too i i I like i also am a, a big fan of star wars as well as well i like star trek and star wars i'm working on a tv show right now for all mankind so that's my current obsession uh but it's also my job so i'm a little biased there uh, it's on Apple TV, by the way, 4 dollars a month, sign up. <laughs> but actually, if you ask me what my, uh, we, we did this, I remember when we were getting together early with NASA, it was a really hard time. My, one of my biggest challenges at SpaceX was getting SpaceX and NASA, who had two completely different corporate cultures, to work together and to get along. And so we were having kind of like this big meeting right when we started to get really serious about flying NASA astronauts on SpaceX rockets. And to kind of like try to break the ice, I had everybody go around the table and say, what's your favorite science fiction movie or space movie? And when it came to me, I didn't say like Star Wars or Wrath Khan or even Apollo 13. Those were all the those are probably the favorites. I said Galaxy Quest because I like the funny. I like the funny stuff. So so Galaxy Quest, I think I, I think is the best space movie of all time.
1: <laughs> For All Mankind is an alternative history series about what things would look like if the Soviets, if the Russians beat the Americans uh, to the moon. I have heard you talk about all the conspiracy theories are out there, mostly the ones that are related to the moon landing. And you've said that you used to be flattered by them, but now they worry you. Can you explain?
2: Yeah. So back in the good old days, when... The nutjobs out there were just focused on that the moon landing was fake. <laughs> back back in the fun old days when uh, it was relatively benign, I almost took it as a compliment. I really did because I thought, wow, you know, we did something so improbable, and you know, we, a lot of us take it for granted. But if you if you think back to let's say, I guess it was uh, was it I'll say 1961 or 62 when 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 JFK first gave his speech to a joint session of Congress where he said, we're going to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they're easy, but because they are hide. Right. Um, <laughs> I, and, and by the way, my, my, my son, one day threw that back in my face. He said, I told him to clean his room. He said, dad, I will clean my room not because it is easy, but because it is hide. <laughs> Smartass. ass. But, but anyway, uh, when he said that to that, he said it twice. First time was to a joint session of Congress. And at that point, do you know how much time Americans had logged in, in space?
1: Uh, no, I don't, but probably not much.
2: 15 minutes and I believe 22 <laughs> seconds, which is the total length of Alan Shepard's initial suborbital flight. That's all we had. And he said, within 10 years, we're going to be walking down the moon and coming back. And that's crazy. all right. That is, I assert that that is actually much more aspirational than anything that Elon or Jeff or Richard has ever said. And that's and that's saying a lot, right? But the amazing thing is that we did it, and now we kind of take it for granted. But that was so hard to do back then. We're having a hard time doing it again, and all you know, all these years later. So I think you know, when people said, "Oh, it was a hoax," it was on a soundstage and in Hollywood or whatever. I I kind of took it as a compliment because it was like, "Wow, we did something so hard." They're still, even today, having a difficult time with all the evidence and, and video and everything they're still having a hard time wrapping their heads around the fact that we actually pulled it off. That's kind of cool, you know? So I thought that, but what changed over the years is like this this fringe movement of conspiracy theorists started entering the mainstream over the past decade, right? And you started, started getting these crazy conspiracies about JFK Jr. still being alive, or uh, you know, some pizza parlor in DC that's, that's human trafficking or with Hillary Clinton and all this crazy, insane stuff. Conspiracy theories became part of certain governments' official foreign policy. I mean, Putin's doing it right now with the denazification of of Ukraine and everything. Right? It's no longer funny. All right, that the, I could laugh at the guys in the tinfoil hats that said we didn't go to the moon, but now that it's corrupting our society and amplified by social media, it's a clear danger to our democracy. And now, any kind of conspiracy theorists, you know, I just find it really no longer remotely a laughing matter.
1: What do we do about it? I mean, clearly there are influencers and and leaders and politicians who are instigating and and provoking these these wild theories. Not sure how much control we have at that level, but is there something culturally or policy-oriented in terms of education that we can do to prepare people for a world that is so confusing in terms of information flows and sources?
2: Boy, Ken, I really, really wish I had a good answer to that question. Uh, Unfortunately, I have to admit, I don't. It seems like just making sure the truth gets out there, fact-checking and so forth, doesn't really work. It seems that the people who buy into this stuff, no matter how, you know, the stuff is is so uh, easily objectively disproven uh, even like flat earthers and stuff. I mean, you could—the ancient Greeks did scientific experiments that proved that the Earth is is round. Okay, a sphere. So it's not like sharing that information or knowledge changes their mind. So what will? I mean, I think it's a fundamental conundrum facing all the people that run these the, our, our social media platforms that where so much of this goes on. At what point do you you know do 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 you shut it down? Uh, and and if you do shut it down. Does that just make it worse? Because then it confirms that oh, you know, they're they're that we're right. It disproves we're right because they're you know I, I have uh, people who will hand me stuff that they print out, and I ask them, well, why don't you just send me the link? And they and they say, well, oh no, no, because uh, they they banned it. <laughs> I'm like, well, shouldn't that tell you something? But it doesn't stop them. So, boy, can I, if you figure this out, please let me know. <laughs> if you, I, I would ask every guest on your podcast that question. Maybe somebody will have. A solution. But unfortunately, I don't.
1: Well, I, I want to end on a slightly elevated note. You've walked in space. And I put a similar question to, to combat vets sometimes. And I'm wondering if it applies to astronauts. When you've had that life-changing adrenaline rush, does normal life pale in comparison is it hard uh to to go back down to earth in your case literally not just metaphorically and try to live a normal life
2: wow well well for the first this i want to make a distinction because you brought up combat and and that is that uh i get i get kind of embarrassed when when sometimes i'll be introduced to give a talk or something and they'll say now there's an american hero uh and and I want There's a big difference in what I did, what I, what you did, Ken, because nobody was shooting at me. All right. So, <laughs> I, yes, I took risks. I, I was and,
1: thirty thousand feet above it, so I, I, I was pretty clear of it. But keep going.
2: You know, there's, they have these missiles. You know, <laughs> yes, they did. <do. laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I did what I did, and it was risky. But I did it because I was so excited about it, and I loved doing it. I wanted to do it, and I was really motivated. Personally, uh, as well as altruistically, but, but it was a, a, a selfish side of it, too. I wanted the adventure, the excitement. Uh, somebody goes out there because they're doing it at a sense of duty and patriotism for their country and are putting themselves in that harm's way, you know, not just because they're off on a grand personal adventure, but because they're doing it for a higher cause. That is true hero, heroism, okay? And I cannot equate what I did to that. It, it would be completely wrong. So I just want to draw that line. But having said that, as far as the excitement and the adrenaline rush, it was awesome. Don't get me wrong. And I miss it. I, I do miss the excitement of being up in space and, and oh, doing a spacewalk. Nothing beats that. And uh, fly, even flying around a T-38, I, I miss that. But all those things are were fantastic life experiences. And, and what excites me is I still, they might not be to the same scale, but I still get a lot of enjoyment and a lot of adrenaline rush out of flying my little piston Airplane, my I have a Cirrus, uh, and and I fly that thing around, and uh, on on some days that can be just as challenging as flying a T thirty eight, given what, it, depending on what the scenario. And I still enjoy, you know, going on hikes and and exploring new mountains and and doing all those kinds of th- outdoor things, and and so I still get my fix, if you will, uh, that way. And it might not be as to the same magnitude as it used to be, but there's so many other things in life that are so worthwhile. And I have a family now. I have kids. And, and just uh, being a dad uh, is another great adventure uh, that I really enjoy. So uh, the, the great, one of the best pieces of advice I got when I was still a- at NASA thinking about going to SpaceX was, first of all, you only get to leave the astronaut office once. And second of all, whenever you're making a move like this or change, don't go away from something. Go towards something. You know, always be excited and find something to do in, in your future that you are passionate about uh, and make you happy. and given everything that happened at SpaceX, I would have to say that mission was accomplished <laughs> so so uh, I think that's the key.
1: Awesome. Well, it's been so great having you. I've got a, a note here. Um, once we're done saving democracy, uh, let's make sure we get pizza in space. so that'll be uh, <laughs> that'll be the next yes, thing please <laughs> thanks again, Garrett.
2: Yes, my pleasure, Ken. Good talking to you.
1: Thanks again to Garrett for joining me. To learn more about Garrett, visit his website, Garrettreesman.com and make sure to check out his podcast, Two Funny Astronauts. The link is in the show description. You can also find him on Twitter at astro underscore g underscore dog with two g's. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rule is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. And with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.
0: This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.